My guests today on the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast are Rachel Hott and Steve Leeds of the NLP Center of New York. This is a kind of rebroadcast of a conversation we had back in December of 2022 as part of the fundraiser for Jerry and Mary Lou Seavey. So here we go once again, Rachel Hott and Stephen Leeds. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart, where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level, while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax, or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. Welcome, Steve and Rachel. Gosh, it's so good to see the two of you together. So we can hear about the NLP Center of New York and what you guys do. How the heck did you guys get started in this? I know my story because I was a musician and I went through Tony Robbins and the Firewalk and it sort of one thing led to another, but that's not your story. How did you guys get involved in NLP so long ago? That was your 32nd elevator. I was 15. <laughs> yes, and, uh, <laughs> we have two different stories and then and then we met. Right? Oh, really? So we have the story of I was just randomly uh, working for a nonverbal communication researcher named Martha Davis. I was probably like 24, 25 have recently graduated from my dance movement therapy master's program and was taking care of a bookshelf where there was frogs into princes. No way. So you were a dance therapy major? Yes, I had a master's in dance movement therapy. I was helping organize her library, right? Trying to do something good in the world of being an intern. And I really opened that book because of its cover. Ha. that led me to my first NLP training. And now your story, and we can tell, say how we are. That's your story? Well, that's, that's <laughs> open. I was doing the one minute elevators, but that's what opened me to NLP. I was okay. intrigued. Yeah. And me, at the time, I was teaching mathematics at an alternative high school in Brooklyn. Really? And, uh, Which one? Yeah. Which high school? It was called PM High School, PM because it was in the evening and it allowed um, high school dropouts to go back to work and finish their, get their diploma in the evening. Wow, interesting. And uh, yeah, it was uh, in downtown Brooklyn in George Westinghouse High School. And um, basically uh, I was looking to change careers. I was enamored with personal development taking things like Est in 1973, but I'll, I'll shorten my, my story, um, make it comparable to under a minute. Um, which, Too late. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> um, and I was like, like when our daughter got married, she wanted to limit our speeches to a certain number of uh, minutes anyway, or seconds. Uh, and I was, so I studied with Jack Hanfield, who wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul books, and, and he recommended um, NLP. Huh. And um, and so me and one of the students in the class picked up a structure of magic and started reading it and, and having our own little study group. And then when I found out about NLP uh, in the uh, Manhattan, um, that's where we met. We both gravitated towards uh, studying NLP in person, which was the only thing there was at the time. There was no internet. Um, so did you study with Annie Linden? Yes. Annie Linden and Frank Stoss, who's no longer alive, uh, but that was our beginning team. But Stephen, um, he was ahead of me. He started, let's say, 1979. Wow, 79? Wow. Wow. That's impressive. In the the couple life, I think I'm the historian, but then maybe we get these little corrections. But in the memory is that he was in the office having just seen a client who was already, you know, been there for a couple of years. And I thought he looked like a nice guy, but probably already married. That was my assessment. 
So we just worked, I was a, what was I, like an office administrator. I think what I had done is I had called up Annie and I had said, what do you do for somebody who's on unemployment? Because at that time I had just left American Management Association as a coder for management competency. And they let me come in and work, you know, doing, you know, what, what do we do in the old days? Copy things? I don't know. You know. <laughs> Copy things. Yeah, it was pre-computer. It's 79, I guess. So it's all filing and putting things in Rolodexes and. Right. Lots of long hair. Yeah. So that's where, that's how we began, but we didn't wow. begin at that moment. Um, it wasn't until a couple of months later when Steve started to flirt. Yeah, we actually, my memory was going to uh, a David Gordon seminar where, where Rachel and I were paired up in a group and she told me a story and uh, it was a great metaphor, um, which we now use. Um, but we got to meet each other and then we made a, met at a holiday party again and that's the beginning of our romance. Right. And I think you would like this story, Doug. We'll see. Let's just go ahead. Give it a go. <laughs> I, will, I will let you know if it passes muster or not. I give it to Steve to tell, and I'll add any edits. Well, we never told it together. She told it to me. I've told it to class. I don't think we've ever done that together. Well, we can start with Once Upon a Time. There Go was ahead. a uh, Once Upon a Time. Um, actually, you know, you know about this time. It was a, it was about King Arthur. Um, <clears throat> more in in. Um, so it was King Arthur, and he was uh, wandering around the kingdom by himself, just kind of disguised as uh, uh, he wasn't um, obviously uh, looking to do his kinging he thing. Was, he was riding his horse through the woods. Well, that's your story. Um, <laughs> my story, actually, he was on his horse. And a, a knight, uh, that a strange knight appeared out of nowhere and just... Um, spooked his horse and he fell off and the knight um, threatened to kill him, right? And this is a good variation. I'm listening. I'm, I'm in the woods now and it was a black horse in my mind and I didn't know this variation, so go on. Well, anyway, the, 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 the gist of it is the, uh, the knight um, threatened to kill him, but he said, I'll spare your life if you could answer a question that I have and I'll give you a week to answer the question. Right. Probably a fortnight in the in the words of King Arthur. <laughs> Either way, I think it's very generous to like, I'm gonna kill you now to like I'll give you a week. I think that's yeah. very generous. Look, I'm, I'm a nice bad guy, you know, and uh, I'm a killer, but What 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 pray tell was the question he needed to have answered? That would be interesting if we could have you guess what the question was, but we'll we'll tell. Now the question is, what is it all women want? Ah, no one, no one knows that. That's a trick question. Yeah. So he went. He went to all his, the the knights of the round ta table, which of course were all men. Oh yeah, that's and, a good. Uh, that's a good source for this information. And they all, when he asked the question, they they looked at each other like, I don't know. Um, so he says, well, you better find out because my life depends upon it, and you know, you work for me. Um, you made a vow um, that you would you would fight for the right um, and fight for the for, for Camelot. So uh, they all went out searching for the answer to the question. Okay. So what happens is one in my version one night like let's say Galahad, right? Just you know. Oh, yeah, let's say that it's Galahad. Yeah. So is riding their horse into the forest and they come across uh, a, a woman who was uh, kind of hunched over, had lots and lots of lots of like warts all over their face, kind of, you know, had this kind of off body center. Oh, right. well, I had a longer version, but we'll stick to the short version. And, and, and she goes, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he said, I'm here, uh, sent by um, King Arthur to find out what it is all women want. And she says, I can tell you, she's the one, I can tell you what all women want, but 
you'll have to marry me, right? Yes. You'll have to marry me, you yeah. know, once I tell you. This is transactional. <laughs> you give something to me, I'll give something to you. Got it. And uh, so he said, uh, he swallowed a bit and his whole future flashed before his eyes about this idea of being married to, to this wish or whatever, uh, whichever word you want to use, which is, a, which is politically correct right now. Um, um, so we'll use that. I'm just going to let, let you talk. I'm just going to stay out of this. You go right ahead. So anyway. Um, he so said, they get to say it, right? Okay. All right. So, um, whatever you want. Is that is this the way it goes? I, 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 we have so many versions of this, but anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll say, what all women want is sovereignty. Now, sovereignty. A lot of times, our students don't get the word sovereignty, especially the foreign students who don't who are English. You know, to translate. Language. What is okay. sovereignty? What does it mean to you? Do you have a sense of what it means? You have it's a, it's um, being the master of your own domain. Yes, exactly. And we we often say you know to to have choice. Yeah. To, to to decide. So then what happens? So he goes back to King Arthur, who um, he he didn't have any other answer, and it seemed like that seemed like a, the correct answer. He went to the knight in, in the designated spot. He told. The night and it was a little like Rumpelstiltskin. It's like you got it right, and he never he disappeared and was never seen again. All right, but Sir Galahad had to fulfill the, their promise. So right? he goes back to the little hut where the right. uh, this person um, was uh, living. Yeah, and he said, "I'm here. You, it was the right answer. You know, um, uh, so I'm here to fulfill my end of the bargain." So, so in that moment, um, she says, you know, my Lord, I can be like this during the day, but I can be like this in the evening. And then, you know, it's like all long flowing hair. She and, transformed you know, into the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen. Right. Wow. Or, or I can be this at night and I can be like this during the day. And Sir Galahad says, um, "No, he did so. She, she, no, she, before he got a chance to speak, um, she said, uh, which is it going to be? Um, it, would you like to be like this at night for when we are together in bed, mm -hmm. or like this when we're out with the people? Mm -hmm. What, 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 what should it be? What do you want?" And and he took a moment shuddered a bit and said, uh, this is not for me to decide. It's totally up to you. It's your choice. And at that moment, she transformed into this beautiful woman. And she was, that was, she was like that forever. I actually have a variation on that. I think he says it's your choice, but we don't know what happens at the end. Oh, oh. it's your choice. Yeah, that's so good. Two versions, and you can take uh, um, either one. Either you don't know the end, or my ending is the happily ever after well, version. You know, when Stephen first heard the story um, earlier in that David Gordon metaphor workshop, I had made up some story. And he actually didn't like it. So I, I, it was it was it was interesting feedback that you could share a story and one person it, it doesn't work for somebody, and then you share another story and it obviously it's worked for you know over thirty six years or however long we've been together now. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, it's, it's it was very impactful. It's a very impactful story for us. How do you feel about it? <laughs> Oh, I I loved it every minute of it. It was on the edge of my seat, um, really. And because you know, it's hard to believe you guys didn't rehearse that because it was just, <laughs> just so you know. Who was to say we didn't? What we rehearsed <laughs> is the uh, the ability to agree and disagree within thirty seconds. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we really. We rarely uh, train together. You know, we did early on huh. a bit, 
uh, but you know, we in all of our trainings, either Rachel's teaching or I'm teaching, and uh, huh. and often at the end of the training, we'll come together and uh, on the final day with the group. Huh. Sometimes it's the first time the group sees us together. So yeah, sometimes it's a joke at the end to say, "Okay, so there's really two different people. You know, we're not the same person. You know, like you know, obviously, huh. but it's worked out logistically um, for us because uh, time-wise, it wasn't." efficient um, right you know i could be seeing clients steve could be leading a training he could be taking care of the kids i could be doing a training all right um, you know we have sharing in, in all the different um, yeah. ways that we've been an nlp couple you know all right and continue to be that's one of the things that i think is sort of an interesting experience for us we just started in 19 whatever steve says 1980 Stephen says 1980, and here we are 2022, close to 2023. And at least for me, you know, my first story, I was in my mid 20s. You do the math. <laughs> Where am I now? You know? <laughs> well, I know that 1980 was 42 years ago, going on 43 years ago. Okay. So. Yeah. Well, the, there's one mentally. way we one way we confirm we never actually. It doesn't matter to me when I started. It was around that time. But I do know that we I started in the fall of some year. And the year that spring, Richard Bandler and John Grinder and David Gordon and Robert Diltz all came to New York. So right. and Leslie came in Bandler. So they were all one at the time. Wow. Uh, in the spring. By the fall, they'd all split up. So oh, really? every year it was that was it, whether it was 80, 79 or 80 or 81. Maybe someone watching this can call us and tell us when we met. Uh, <laughs> what I do know is that Leslie Cameron is now Leslie Cameron LeBeau. Just to, to oh, continue. yeah? She uses LeBeau now? Yeah, because she married Michael LeBeau. Right, I know. But she, she bothers. She she puts yeah. the Cameron in there anyway, so it's not just Leslie LeBeau. I, I thought so. I thought it was Leslie Cameron. David would know. Well, you know, if she really had sovereignty, she could just be Leslie Cameron, you know, <laughs> Leslie Cameron. She's just I need that she guy. Can have any, yeah. You know the story about uh, Steve Andreas and uh, Connie Ray, right? I forgot. Tell you. I'm well, just that uh, Steve Steve took Connie Ray's name. His, oh, right, yeah, right, 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 right. He had been um, Steve O. Uh, James John, Steve. John, John Stevens. Yeah. I thought you could tell me how they met. Right? Yeah, that's what I thought too. Well, they they were in a workshop together. No, I don't know. I don't know how they met. But um, <laughs> we'll have to bring Connie Ray back for an interview about that. Yeah. But it's it's interesting that the first book that you saw was uh, Frogs and the Princess, Rachel, because I was talking oh, to her about that. I was saying that basically, if we're, I think if it weren't for those two. And the, all the books that they published and put together, I don't think NLP would be as big as it is today. Um, and, and, and the illustrator, you know, whoever the illustrator was. Yeah. It looked like Peter Max, but I don't know. But, you yeah. know, I think that... Um, and here's, here's our the version is coming apart here. Oh, my goodness. Here. Oh, oh, <laughs> the structure of holding on. Um, is that a, is it a hardback book? Yeah. yeah. Wow, I've never seen it in hardback. Wow, cool. Wow. Yeah, they're out of. They may be out of print now. Yeah. Um, and then this is a better. This, this is a structure too. So they all came out as hardbacks originally. Uh, but it's interesting that you say that these two books brought, you know, in no in that time period, seventy five to, in my period, which ninety one, was it that we as a populist read more books, mm -hmm. went to the bookstore, because we surely didn't have anything like Amazon, the internet. Right. Yeah. And so got influenced that way. But now these books are not necessarily the influencer. No, no. Right? no. You, I wonder what, what gets people. I know sometimes it's a podcast. Somebody will say, Oh, I heard NLP. Yeah. Uh, we've had a lot of people say, you know, my boss took some kind of NLP. And I really liked how they were interacting. Mm -hmm. On occasion, it's 
the opposite. My boss did NLP and I didn't, I felt like I was being kind of played with. So I wanted mm -hmm. to know what they were doing. Like, yeah. I've gotten both of those. But I would say that, you know, podcasts and YouTube probably. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I'd say so too. You know, for me, you know, I was a musician in New York City. I had no interest in, I mean, I needed psychotherapy, but I didn't want to be a psychotherapist, you know, and um, I went to Tony Robbins firewalk experience because I was basically dragged to it by my now ex-girlfriend um, who was interested in this thing and she said, you're coming. So, so it was kind of like the EST model, Steve, you know, it was like if you, somebody goes to the seminar, then they are supposed to bring their friends and family next time. So it literally was based on that. It's where Tony did his marketing back then. So I was dragged to this thing and thought, okay, I'll, I'll get this over with, you know, she kind of looked like this a little bit. So, <laughs> so I, I, I completed my obligations. But in, in fact, it turned out to be a really cool seminar. And Tony was teaching NLP. He was, everything he taught at that point was NLP. And he called it such. And also the firewalk is an introduction to NLP. Like what you can do when you do NLP is you can even do crazy things like walking across hot burning coals. And so, yeah, the first book I ever read was Frogs into Princes. And it seemed like it was the, you know, kind of de facto textbook of NLP at that point. But that was, that was mid eighties. That was 85. And then I. Tony, Tony Robbins did a, a good service for NLP. You know, he's gone beyond obviously, but huh. I think many people will go to Tony's seminars and say, I want more, or yeah. I want to be more grounded because that's, I don't know what. That's still true. Anymore. Yeah, that's absolutely still true. Sid Jacobson teaches a, a thing for Tony Robbins people um, oh, during, really? yeah, during, during Tony's events. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. That's very nice. I don't know Sid, but I've heard his name forever. Yeah, he's great. You'd, you'd like him. Um, yeah, he's, he's been around as long as you guys have as he started in the, he, he did, he said is the second NLP training outside of like Santa Cruz. It was down in New Orleans in like 1970-something. You'd have to get the historians out, 77, 78, 79, maybe. Yeah, I, I met him at some there conferences. There are a couple of historians out there. You know, there's, there's so many different NLP people, you know. We're part of the Leadership Summit that has had met in person up until January 2020. I went to Alicante, Spain. And we all met, uh, so all different NLP leaders who have training, not everybody does training. Some people are doing research, you know, there's a big move to have research, but, you know, to have different countries represented. So I've seen the more current, and now it's a more online conversations uh, that exist. So that's, that's, you know, more the current NLP. We have the history, we have the... Yeah. So what do you guys think is the, is the future of NLP? Tell me, tell me what you think, where is it going? What's, the, what's real in the NLP world? You know, about, about, about 25 yeah. years ago, there was a panel. Um, uh, Annie Linden was on the panel. I was on the panel. Um, and uh, I forget who else was there. But one of the questions they said 25 years ago is, what is the future of NLP? Um, and uh, I kind of remember what I said back then was, I think that in the future, NLP will, um, will be more common sense. When we talk about, you know, literally common sense that everyone will just have, this will be, I guess, intuitive because people will have learned this. And, you know, I do think that it might just fade away. I still think that it may just be something that, you know, 25 years later, people are doing NLP without calling it NLP. It's part sure. of coaching. It's part of uh, um, Weight Watchers. It's part of different organizations. People do it. Um, even Tony is not mentioning NLP. Um, uh, 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 
So I just, I do think that it might just dissipate um, and uh, because there are so many people, I mean, the, the, the leadership summit is attempting to codify it and get do research on it. Bring it into academia. I, I think for me, you know, when I'm speaking in groups, cause you think about, or I think about you work with Shelly and you know, the possibility of talking about sameness or difference or difference with exception. And, you know, I could say, oh, I've been doing the same thing since, you know, we started our training center in what, 84, 86, something like that. And uh, what I often say to groups is the material is the same. You, you know, of course, some techniques have been, you know, with variations, of course, now doing more online training. Uh, but the people are completely different. Like whatever the issues are, there's always communication issues. Like we cannot get away from relationships with ourselves, with others. That exists in any century. And then we have these great tools. So I see the future to continue with these tools. You know, it's, it's, it's um, maybe a different way because Stephen and I had not been online until we were pushed by COVID to mm -hmm. be online. So that opened up a whole new area. Um, how people communicate, telehealth has really opened up for, for people. So we could have, you know, somebody from England and somebody from um, Marrakesh, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. I, I still think there's a future of tools for anybody because you can't say these issues go away. They, mm. they may continue in a different way. People are talking about how people suffered now with COVID issues. Right. You know, the isolation, right, that, right. that many teenagers. So I, I see it as an ongoing development. But my question, Doug, would be workshops. Whether people, you know, so I do one-on-one -on -one work. Stephen does one-on-one -on -one work. We do work with couples. We work with families. We also do training. That's where I wonder, you know, what's happened. Because we often talk about in the 60s, it was so big with self-development groups, you know. Mm -hmm. and, you know, the early NLP trainers had hundreds of people coming, right? We don't have hundreds of people coming. Maybe Tony Robbins still has his. No, he has thousands, thousands and multiple thousands. As, as you said, you, you, you um, as a musician, you didn't come to be a trainer or a therapist. You came for the experience. You know, you were, you were. Yeah. Uh, he was dragged. Yeah, dragged. But you did. You definitely had a personal experience, and a lot of people at the time um, were coming for personal experiences. Yes, that's true. Right now, and yeah. yet, one thing that's changed over time is that while people are coming for personal experiences, more and more students are coming and saying, "How can I make money with this?" Mm. You know, the times have changed. I read an article in the Times saying people are looking more not for looking for stability in work versus you know my you know so i think people are looking how can i monetize nlp yeah. they realize you know um this is an amazing experience um and you know yes you can make money if your skills and and know and have tools of transformation that could be uh, that can empower other people. But you know, we also know that people are learning NLP. Think, oh, it's manipulative. How can I get what I want with NLP? So I do think what people are looking for is much more varied than it was initially. Initially, yeah. there were a lot of therapists who weren't looking to make more money. They were looking to be better at what they did. A lot of gestalt therapists came to NLP. It was the next level, the next thing. Yeah. So that, is, that has changed. Yeah, yeah. I think that the future is um, unclear in the world of coaching. You know, we teach mainly in New York. Like I said, we have an international audience, but mainly our work, we don't go internationally. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, even that. Well, actually, um, I'll go 
uh, a couple of months before uh, COVID, I was in, uh, uh, in China teaching a, a training there um, of, you know, um, it's at least a hundred people okay, in the training so, program. So, so we were doing that until yeah. Okay. So the world I see. I see myself more as a New York-based trainer, and what I also see as a trend is the world of coaching. Mm -hmm. And so we'll get a lot of people who we say yes, we're giving you a coach certification. Uh, but I can I can see the trending in the world of corporate, like you know, let's say mindfulness now is a, a well-developed mainstream word. Coaching is a well-developed mainstream word. NLP is still kind of uh, on the edge a little bit. You know? mm -hmm. Any good coach will come and study with us. You know, like they yeah. know, they, they talk to other people. And, 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 and an NLP person who studies with us sometimes feels that they have to go to coaching only to play the game uh, or they they ask me about academics they're still mm -hmm. asking like well how would i get you know a license and you know right it's just, right because both of you guys are, are licensed right you both are uh, psychotherapists yes. officially yeah. well, rachel's a clinical psychologist yeah i actually went back to school you know i had that early dance movement therapy did mm -hmm. my NLP for a while but i was teaching a course at american management association about goal setting mm -hmm. and I always had a PhD as a goal and I, I started to feel out of integrity with the executives who I was teaching you know I was encouraging them to to uh, you know achieve professional excellence it was called so I gave myself that challenge at uh, around 40 years old that I would have a PhD and I already you know had some um, a master's already so it wasn't the 10-year yeah, that I think Stephen Gilligan basically said something to me like, oh, now you're playing with the big guys, you know. Mm -hmm. But we do get that comment a lot of times of stability, but will NLP give you the stability? And I don't know, Doug, if you've experienced this with your students, but in addition to all these skills, you have to know how to be a business person. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, my my podcast, as you know, because you've both been on it, is, is called the... Um, essential coaching skills podcast but it's about both the skills to be a great coach but also the skills that you need to be a coach in business you know how do you how do you make money how do you make a living as a as a practitioner and that is of course the challenge for all of us for anybody whether you're a nlp person or a hairdresser or whatever you you are not just the technician you're also the business person who has to get customers in the door have to pay the bills Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Um, so yeah, it's an age-old issue. You've got to wear multiple hats. I mean, even as a therapist, you have to do that. You still have to get clients as a as a LCSW. I, I never thought of myself as a business person, and I thought, wait, that's not true. You know, we take we 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 manage questions and calls. Um, sure. Service. It's it's a different product. You know, it, yeah. it's not not a uh, I don't know. We're not selling. You know, remote. Um, but for sure, the awareness of rapport, yeah, you know, to essentials, you know. Yeah, for sure. So I find it very interesting that um, the history of NLP, if you will, that it start, started from Bandler and Grinder, who were not therapists, modeling therapists like Fritz Perls first and Virginia Satir, and they sort of became, in a way, better at doing that than many of the people who had studied to be practitioners. They just didn't quite get what Bandler and Grinder got. And so then when Bandler and Grinder started teaching seminars in Gestalt therapy, you know, therapists would come to it and, and learn more. It was it was really kind of cool. And then of course they met Milton Erickson and they said, okay, that's enough. We'll just we'll just focus on this guy now. But um what, I, what I understood was that they actually never met Fritz Perls is one of the stories I heard that they only listened to real to real. You know that the audio taste but i you know that's a story i don't know where where i heard that one. it's it's certainly possible but i have heard stories about how richard would you know talk like him and walk like him and do things like that so maybe mm -hmm. I don't know. i'm not sure it's a good question i think the best part about modeling fritz pearls is really identifying parts 
really identifying, you know, recognizing these different parts and being able to step into each one. Right. I think that was, I know you did a lot of Gestalt training. What would you say is the value of, of uh, Gestalt from the incorporated well, into NLP? I, I do think that uh, this, the idea of parts is, um, NLP wouldn't be NLP without this idea of intrapersonal communication. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and parts work and reframing of parts. Sure. It's, it's sort of a, a core um, idea. I let me know. just let me just ask you about modeling though, because um, it's interesting when when Bandler and Grinder modeled people back in the old old days. You know, they they did kind of sort of just go into it. I mean, there's the famous story about Bandler and Grinder doing a double induction for Stephen Gilligan to you know do deep trance identification with Milton Erickson, and when he came out of the trance he was you know sort of confined to a wheelchair and talking like erickson and moving like action and having that kind of weird inability to really use his mouth because erickson had polio left over and so and then you know bander walking around and talking like fritz pearls with that austrian accent um as if that was an important feature so modeling was never really taught as often talked about but nobody really taught modeling until from my experience at least david gordon came along and did that modeling mm -hmm. thing and i took the workshop you guys put on with david in at your place in new york city um it's a 12-day workshop if i recall correctly um but that was where i really started to understand what modeling was all about would you I agree think, with that? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, what I understand from the early days, because, you know, it's really my interpretation, right, is that it's, they were starting with behavior first. And, you know, one of the things about Stephen Gilligan is he knew Milton Erickson so well that he could also go into what, you know, um, David Gordon was working with, with what was so important, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the, the criteria and the emotional states. Um, but I think that overall, it's learning how to ask questions to the exemplar. And it just got better and better, you know, in, over the years, I think with all the different contributions. Um, I, I just, when I like using Robert Diltz's model of the logical levels. Mm -hmm for our students for modeling so for modeling yeah tell me about that how does that work for modeling i ask ask the students in the master practitioner to go out and find somebody who has an attribute that they like so you know for example somebody who's really um disciplined about exercising okay so asking them and then inviting them to step into the experience right so they're associating it and then going through what's the context, what are your behaviors, uh, what, what are your capabilities, what are your values and beliefs, who are you, and what's your greater than, you know, purpose, and stepping into that and then having our students become that in their own way mm -hmm. and we interview, we interview them. So I say, so what's it like, you know, but tell you know, let's say um, you were modeling somebody, I say, what What do you think Doug could do better about exercising? So we're learning from the model. And then the last question is, uh, what's a gift that you want to give to Doug? You know? And then from that, we, we bring it back to you and we offer you this gift. So I kind of, you know, have a variety of things. One is that you have to go find somebody. So in my early days of training, I would say, just pick the model. So somebody might might do Mother Teresa, right? Mm -hmm. Which we all know. We, you know, we read nowadays. We can watch documentaries. It's it's one way of modeling, but I think the uh, questioning is is the way to go. And then you know, subtly, I it, it remind them about some of David's uh, questions. I don't I don't use that as much as I do the, the logical levels. Hmm, fascinating. So you don't use the experiential array of David Gordon's thing. You, you mostly stick to the. Can I throw it in in little pieces? Well, Go ahead. Yeah. Also, you know, thinking about the meta model, it is about modeling. It's the meta model. It's modeling 
It's uh, how the person's map of the world with mm -hmm. their distortions, deletions, and generalizations. How do you do what you do? Uh, it's not asking any why questions, just the what and the how. And you know, over the years, you know, in addition to having Chris Pearls' model and Virginia Satir and Milton Erickson and um, and Robert Diltz's model Bandler and sleight of mouth patterns. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of models. So when I'm doing coaching and counseling, um, all of that is part of my model. There are many different models I can step into when I can do something might be more gestalt or more hypnotic or, or more couples work. Um, and ultimately, before I know what model I'm going to use with someone, because people say, come say, oh, I want hypnosis. Well, let's see what is needed here. And I always start out by modeling my clients and learning about, finding about what their model is, what they're dealing with and learning from them and modeling their experience, um, their beliefs, their patterns. And then from that, I can assess um, what a therapeutic model would be appropriate for them. Right. So right. It's, really, it's always modeling. It's always being curious, always being in that state of wonder. Tell me more about how you do what you do. Right. What, what, are you been, what have you been doing with modeling? Thank you. Thank you for asking me that, Rachel. Um, <laughs> well, how do you do it? <laughs> Well, th again, thank you for asking me that, Stephen. Um, I I do a lot of of asking those kinds of questions. You're absolutely right, Steve. That the meta model is about, you know, eliciting from the person what is their map of the world. How do they do what they do? And if the what they do is like I have a phobic reaction to cats, it's like, well, that's interesting. How do you do that? Um, and then we can in a sense, get the structure of that experience that cr creates that subjective experience for them. And then we can, if we want to, take it on for ourselves so we can also become phobic of cats, or we can say, let's let's perturb that system and change it in some way that makes it not function so they no longer have the phobia of cats. And then maybe we can actually model somebody who has a fascination for cats and say, how do they do that? And, you know, take on that structure. So not only do I not have a phobia of cats, but I, I'm fascinated by them little critters, you know, so you, you can do that too. I think that's one of the beautiful things about NLP is it really, once you've discerned that, that model, whatever it might be, you can do that. You can take it on for yourself and become a better gardener or better, actually the, the thing I wanted, Steve, when I first started NLP is I wanted to be a better piano player. I know I wanted to use NLP to get better at what I was doing at the time. So literally there were two things I wanted to get better at in this NLP seminar that I was going to take was piano playing and marathon running. I wanted to be better at that. Um, and gosh darn it, I did. It took a few years, but... <laughs> You're playing the piano at the same time. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that was the hard part. Getting the it's like you had the time, but how did you use that time? And you use that time uh, based upon what you've learned. You know, yeah. the, the one thing I mentioned being a math major um, and people say math and psychology, how did you go from one field to the other? And yet when I was learning mathematics, you know, people didn't say uh, the, the teachers, I had wonderful teachers who didn't say, oh, that's the right answer, that's the wrong answer, zero points or 10 points. They basically said, how did you do that? Huh. How did you come up with the answer? They weren't interested in their, I actually, um, some of my teachers gave me a lot of credit for the wrong answer. Huh. Um, it wasn't about where you got to, it was like, well, how did you get there? And wow. then what? And then what happened? That, that's amazing, that's really cool. That's really cool. So for me, it's that's how I taught one of my, my students the math class. Just curious, how did you get from A to B? Wow. And, oh, so you went from A to B, and then when I asked them the question, how did you, they realize? Oh, that didn't make sense. And I said, well, how else could you have done it? 
and they began to learn with questions about, oh, I can do it another way. That's so That's cool. Logical. So in a way, it, for me, what attracted me to NLP was the structure yeah. that each person has. It's a study of the structure of subjective experience, exactly. which is perfect. It was about the model. One's a math model and one's a individual model of the yeah. world. Oh, wow. That's that's great. I wish I had had a math teacher like you. Wow, that's fantastic. You know, I was talking to Robert Diltz yesterday, and he said that his first major when he got to US um, Santa Cruz was art. He was an art major. And then the second semester he switched, he switched his major to physics and calculus. And I'm going like, Robert, you don't have to make up words. It's okay. <laughs> you um, know, he did something at a workshop once where he put a formula, Robert Diltz put a formula on the board and he asked everybody our physical reaction but then he switched it you know i don't know what he did he made it colorful or he said add other words to it you know and it was you, you know uh -huh. having the association because there is a unfortunately for some of us you know the association uh i never really did well in you know geometry yeah. Yeah. I, I just want to tag on for modeling that um rob schwartz who you know mm -hmm. um Really has a passion for modeling, and and so that that has ongoingly been an inspiration to hear when he meets one of our students and he's leading a class. He goes, "Oh, I have to go model that person." He's always intrigued, and and um, he he keeps, I'd say, the experiential array from David Gordon very much in his work. Yeah. Um, and on a total tangent, you know, just yeah. talking about NLP and tools. Yeah. Um, this is really a tangent. Just going somewhere else. Well, it's mathematics, tangent. Oh, okay. You can also do a secant. We've and, been uh... watching. <laughs> been watching a, a Korean series. It's called "It's Okay to It's Okay to Not Be Okay," and it's huh. not that this is I'm promoting. What I'm promoting is the use of submodalities. You know, like we talk a lot about interpersonal communication, and then this idea of how do we communicate internally and I don't speak Korean so I I read the subtitles but what I discovered is throughout the day I started to hear Korean in my head huh. and I realized it was covering up any internal chatter so huh. I started to have some internal chatter and then I said I'm just turning no I just said I'm turning it to Korean and I just it, it it went away, so I just thought mm -hmm. I have to remind myself. Sometimes these some modality tools I I forget to use, and then like you know just that. That's moment. a good one. It's, it's change your internal dialogue to another language you yeah. don't understand. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's great. So what did I say? I have no idea. I don't speak that language. Um, but yeah, that's brilliant. And it's also interesting that in neither model of modeling. Um, our submodalities brought up. I mean, the experiential, experiential array doesn't talk about submodalities. Um, the logical levels doesn't talk about submodalities, but that, that could be a really key thing. Interesting experience. And yet, yeah. of course, you know, with the meta model, when you chunk down and you chunk down from unspecified to specified, you will get visual auditory kinesthetic. So if you, how, you, how do you think about that? Well, I visualize it. But then how do you visualize it? Mm -hmm. So you are ultimately looking for how do you experience your experience, which is right. somewhat it's interesting. What Rachel said, it was about the show was about some modalities. It may yeah, for me in turn. I know, yeah. but I was thinking she meant there were certain scenes that they slow down oh. the emotion. And the camera it's, work. So yeah. it's interesting to see this this time stretched out. And, and, and also, it's, it, it could be just someone looking at the camera, and it's a slow down with facial expressions. And I had just seen um, Charlie Chaplin, um, the great, the great dictator, dictator, last week, and, and how they sped it up. You know, they, they use scenes where he's moving around that it's not in regular time. Hmm. So it's... Something like that is is deep. It's like one some modality shift to slow down or to speed up is mm -hmm. what made the scene the scene. 
-hmm. It's not the content. So mm -hmm. I think sometimes with all the complex complexities of NLP techniques, sometimes we do forget, people do forget the simple some modality shift yeah. of making things lighter, mm -hmm. of making of moving of, of making things still yeah. locations. I do think that that piece that Ben Richard Bandler developed is sometimes you don't need to do anything else other than make a some modality shift and see if it sticks. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's uh, yeah. I was just thinking about you and the piano. You know, it's such a, a important part of, of you and, and seeing seeing behind you to play to know you could play something fast um slow right loud soft mm -hmm. and there would be a different experience oh I yeah have have you explored that with your own playing sure yeah absolutely and it's also you know what i was thinking about piano playing i used to i got into doing hypnosis my first experience with hypnosis was because i had a fear of performance a performance anxiety um so like 1980 or so i went to a place in colombia this woman was doing a study about piano players with performance anxiety and um she taught us how to do self-hypnosis so that we wouldn't have that anymore and, and it was really fascinating to me because part of what I just I'm re realizing now because of this discussion part of what happened is that I changed the pictures that I was making in my brain when I was playing so that when I was sitting up there um, about to perform and, and what was in my head was a picture of all the audience members in really big and, and clear and bright and like well, I was scared because I was focused on that. But if I took that picture and shrunk it down and moved it over there and made it black and white and then just focused on the piano, I was okay because it was just me and the music and I liked that. You know? Yeah, I was, I was thinking just yesterday actually about performance anxiety and how there are so many ways in which we could, um, things to focus on or defocus on yeah, or defocus on. yeah right um and what often happens is of all the infinite possibilities our mind gets into one as oh, oh my god like you know i'm getting anxiety i, I want to stop thinking about that and then all you do is thinking about that and you don't see oh i can do that right. but i also do this it's like if you're doing a presentation and sometimes if you go meditate to yourself and you now you're hearing yourself speak, you don't want to do that. You don't want to be hearing yourself speaking as you're speaking, but you can. Mm. It's not useful. And to be able to say, oh, yeah, that's one thing I can do. I can do that. I have the ability to go meta, but I also have the ability to come back and focus on um, one person and right. speak to that person. So it's, we have this, that's what I like about NLP. We have the ability to do this. We yeah. have the ability to worry. How do you do it? We have the ability to become anxious. How do we do that? How do you, how are we able to do it? How else can you do it? Um, what's another way you can worry? And so I do think the idea of modeling is learning how people do it so they can do something different. Yeah, exactly. Part of the fun for me with listening to Stephen, but maybe with the typical stuff. Fun listening to me. Well, is is seeing 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 the opposite or seeing another way or you know that that idea. And I was just thinking that we do often focus on the worry or the anxiety. The other focus with resources, right, is what do you do well? Where are when you're super confident or where you know oh i don't have any performance anxiety when i go shop grocery shopping right, right like right you know, and reminding ourselves i do this a lot with working with um pain is paying attention to what part of your body feels good because the attention is so much on what doesn't feel good mm -hmm. i think that you know some of that came influenced from milton erickson you know we have all the resources we need a little bit of it came from Richard Bandler questioning why don't we experience joy 
you know, where, what, what, what is that about? You know? right. um, and, and then just learning more and more about uh, that we pay attention, how to pay attention to everything. Mm-hmm. You know? So that, that's my, where I was having fun thinking how I would change it a little bit, improve it a little bit. <laughs> my way. Yeah, and also it's the both and aspect that Stephen Gilligan brought at least to my attention. I don't know if he was the originator of it. He credits Erickson, although I never remember Erickson ever saying it exactly. But certainly the idea of having both at the same time is really important to me because I can listen, be meta and listen to what I'm saying and how I'm saying it. Um, and at the same time, be communicating and focusing on the person that I'm speaking to. And it's kind of coming from music, you know, it's like I'm, I'm playing the note, but I'm also hearing how it's happening in context, how it's landing out there, you know, it's in the, the context of the piece itself. So then how does the melody stand out in the chord structure, you know, kind of thing. It's, it's I'm, I'm meta, but I'm also doing it at the same time. I, I, for me also, and I did get a lot of that from Stephen Gilligan as well, um, which informs almost all the work I do as well, because it's one way of knowing, are you operating linearly, consciously, uh, or the unconscious, where the unconscious two things can be uh, exist at the same time. Mm. The conscious mind um, is the rational mind. Right. And, which is kind of come back to mathematics, because rational comes from the word ratio, which is a comparison of two numbers. Oh my goodness gracious, seriously? That, that just blew my mind, really, that's amazing. Say that again. Rational comes yeah. up with a ratio, which is a comparison of two numbers. Yes, it's a comparison. Wow. So to be rational is to compare wow. uh, one to the other. So whenever we're comparing, we're in our rational mind. That's um, great. Um, whereas when we're not comparing, when we're holding two things simultaneously, well, it's not either or. It's, do I do this or do I do this? Do I, is it for me or for the other person and myself or my other? Um, but there's two people with two um, criteria, two needs. Holding them is not comparing them. Hmm. It's not saying one over the other, yeah. dominant, submissive. It's just oh. holding it. So um, that's not rational. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I have nothing I could improve on that. that, that <laughs> no, I, that's good. I think it's a good closer. That, that's yeah, I think so too. How can I improve upon <laughs> this? Oh, I you went into trans. I'm going to work on that formula. I'm, I'm just sitting with the, the ratio. Um, the only thing I can say that I, I like about that is knowing where word, words come from. And I like... Um, corporation because it's corporeal and it means the body so i always like to think about incorporating and taking into the body so that's the only thing i can offer you as another word that had no meaning but when it comes to math you are that's cool are the master and i'm not to bring up irrational numbers <laughs> thank you we didn't raise irrational or even or even imaginary numbers oh you know that's uh goodness. That goes beyond. I yeah, I don't. I I, yeah, that's where I stop right there. So, All right, so <laughs> stop, stop right there. Right. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Doug. Yeah, thank hey, you. thank you. And let's. Um, so I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. I'm, I'm interrupting. So I just like to thank anybody who's listening, who's contributing to Mary Lou and Jerry to yeah. recovery. Yes, thank exactly. Thank you so much for that. So thank you for being here and let's hope that this does some good for people and if not just um, interesting, but also that they can find it in their hearts to contribute to Mary Lou and Jerry, because gosh knows we could be there and need the same thing sometime tomorrow for all we know. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it can happen in a moment. Yeah, exactly. The, the gratitude moment, you know. Yeah, indeed. Live for today. And as if you could live for a thousand years. And isn't it nice to know that you can enjoy both at the same time? <laughs> See you. Thank you, guys. Thank you.
This has been the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure seeing you again. Hope to see you again real soon. Come back next week when we have another gripping and exciting episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. And if you want to, you can find out more about us, each and every one of us, at EssentialCoachingSkills.com. Thanks. Thanks.